amazing. I think every week till August, I'm just going to sing that last final chord and just try out for the worship team up here. So, hey, it's great to see everybody. Uh, like Jim said, if you're visiting, if you're near Calvary, you met Jim. Uh, my name is Peter. I'm one of the guys on staff. And we're going to do what Jim teed up for us to do. We're going to jump into the book of Revelation. So uh, if you do have your Bible, if you have your devices, we kind of started this last week. And we're going to pick up from where we were last week. And so I will pray and, as always, ask the Lord to work. He has a purpose for all of us here. He has a purpose for the words. Uh, there's a great passage in Isaiah that talks about how God's word is like the rain, and it accomplishes its purpose, and it doesn't uh, return void, right? Just like the rain waters the plants, so his word waters our hearts. And so uh, I will pray, and then we'll press into what God has for us this morning. Father, we are grateful for the chance as a body to sing about you and to affirm you and to uh, praise and proclaim together as a body who you are and what you are and your glory. And thank you that you've left guidance for us about yourself and that we don't have to guess. We can open up what you've spoken to us and revealed yourself. And so, Father, this is a important text that we're in this morning and in many ways a heavy text. And we know that it's a text that there's things for us to learn and understand, but if all we do is understand more doctrine, and Father, if this doesn't really shake us uh, and impact us and serve as a catalyst for us, then we're missing something. And there's nothing that I or anybody can do to change hearts. That's the work of the Spirit. And so as we work through this this morning, Father, I pray that in my own heart and in the hearts of people who are followers of Jesus here, that this will really shape us and will help give us direction for what you want us to be doing in our lives. So thank you, Father. Thank you that you work through us for the good of other people. Um, and we pray these things in the name of our King, Jesus, and for his glory. Amen. All right, well, if you were here last week, <clears throat> we kicked off uh, our study working through Revelation chapter 14. And what we said when we started that last week is that there's been a lot of things in the book of Revelation. If you're newer or you're just checking us out, um, what we're taking the perspective of the book of Revelation is kind of looking ahead to the future to talk about things that are yet to come and things that are going to happen in the future. And there's been a lot of heavy things that together you and me in our study of Revelation have heard and have come across. And, and these original readers who would have been reading this for the first time back in 95 AD or so, they were going through persecution, and they were facing hardships, and life was not easy for them. And in the midst of their own difficulties and challenges, they would have been hearing this news about how, if our take on the book of Revelation is correct, how in the future, even more challenging, even more difficult things were going to happen. And they probably would have been in a place where, man, their hearts were heavy, like we set up. There would have been some discouragement. They would have wondered hey, we're in this tough spot, and it seems like the future for Jesus' people is also going to have some difficulties. And as they were processing that, <clears throat> what God does is what he's done several times in the book of Revelation already, is he pauses. And he calls a time out, and he, he, he knows the heart of his people, and he says, look, I know that y'all are, are weary and are tired, and, and original readers, you've been processing some things, and so I want to just kind of give you some encouragement about what's on the other side of what you're facing and what people who believe in me 
will face in the future. After they face that hard stuff, right? Like the jingle bell run in Nichols. After you face that first hard hill and you're running up that hill and you're asking ourselves, man, is it going to get easier? Is it going to get harder? And you want to know what's on the other side of that. God wants to tell his people, look, let me give you a snapshot of for you as followers of Jesus, what's on the other side of your moment now and what's on the other side of the yet-to-come moments that are going to be challenging and are going to call for endurance and a call for faithfulness and for perseverance. That's what we talked about last week in chapter 14. Last week in chapter 14 was after the hardship, after the pain, after the difficulty for followers of Jesus, what's on the other side of that? But then the question comes up in the text and maybe even for us is, well, we spent a little bit of time last week studying what's on the other side of the reality for followers of Jesus but the question then becomes, what's on the other side of the reality for people who aren't followers of Jesus? What's on the other side of the story of their life and this earth for them? And is it the same reality for Christians? Is it a different reality for Christians? What does that reality look like? And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to talk about it today because what we do every week at Calvary is we work our way through the verses and through the paragraphs of a book of the Bible. And we talk about what that next paragraph and what that next verse talks about. And a big part of chapter 14 last week was talking about what's on the other side of this reality, what's the reality for followers of Jesus. And a big part of the remaining paragraphs of chapter 14 are what's on the other side, what's the reality, according to the Bible, for people who aren't followers of Jesus. We're talking about it because the text talks about it, and we're going to have a little bit of like teaching, we're going to talk about theology, we're going to talk about different thoughts about some of these different things, but what I want to make sure we understand is amidst the knowledge that we get today about different theological perspectives about what the Bible says about the reality for non-Christians is this isn't just an academic thing. Um, at Calvary, what we do every week is we open up the Word, like I said, and, and the point is not what does Peter think, what do the elders think, the point is not what do we wish the Bible said, the point is not what would we have written had the Bible say it. If we wrote it, the, the point is, what does the Bible say? And so we're going to look at what the Bible says, and it may not be what you like, it may not be what we like, it may not be what you would have done if you were God, but we're going to see what God says. And we're going to learn, but in addition to learning, um, <clears throat> this is heavy, because if this is true, which I believe it is, then, man, there's some implications for that. And I think it's sometimes easy when we talk about heavy things to simply get wrapped up in abstract theological, philosophical discussions, and we miss that abstract theological discussions underneath that are realities for real people and are realities for people that we care about. And so we're going to see what the text says, and it's, it's heavy, um, and it's not a light thing. So Revelation 14 uh, verses 6 through 13. And together, here's what we're going to work through in the next few minutes. Well, not just few minutes. <laughs> I 
that's pastor talk for like 48 minutes, okay? But you all know that, right? So in the next 45 minutes or so, maybe, what we're going to walk through is this. What are the options regarding the afterlife for non-Christians, right? What are the options? What does today's text say about that issue? Does what Revelation says about that issue align with what Jesus said? How do we understand the description of hell that we've seen all here? And then, okay, we've learned a lot, but what do we do? What do we do? And so, here's the first uh, question we're going to think about. The first question is this. What are the options regarding the afterlife for non-Christians, right? What are the options regarding the afterlife for non-Christians. And I'm going to set up kind of three big ones. Now, each of these three is not necessarily from Scripture, right? So we'll get to the Bible in a minute. But when you broadly, if you were just to kind of take a sampling of three of the biggest thoughts out there about this question, right? So if somebody doesn't believe in Jesus, what are the three thoughts about what happens to them? What does it work out? There's kind of lots of big ideas, but three main ones. And here's the first one, right? So a lot of folks who will say, hey, there's no afterlife for anybody. Whether you believe in Jesus, whether you don't believe in Jesus, whether you're a Muslim, whether you're a Hindu, whether you're a nothing, there's a big swarm of people, again, this isn't based out of the Bible, who would say it doesn't really matter because there's nothing after this. This is all there is, nothing else on the other side of it. Then another pretty big view is, this is a big word for today. Ready? A couple big words come up. Woo! Pluralistic universalism. Pluralistic universalism. And what this says is there's many paths to the same destination, many paths to salvation. My grandparents lived um, in a little town here in Connecticut, and down the street from them, there was this pond. It wasn't really this amazing pond. When you're 9 and 10 years old, you, you know, you think any pond is massive. It probably was the size of this stage. It probably was an inch deep. But man, I would get tadpoles. I'd get salamanders. And the theory was that this pond had a little stream and that that little stream would eventually twist and turn and would lead to Long Island Sound. Now, many times in my life, I thought, I'm going to get me some Oreos and an apple and a backpack, and a stick. And I'm going to follow that brook to a river that's eventually going to become a stream that's going to dump into the Long Island Sound. And the Long Island Sound, right, there's many rivers that all dump into that same large body of water. And what this view says is there's lots of different rivers. There's the river of Christianity. There's the river of Hinduism. There's the river of Buddhism. But this will say... Each of those rivers, at the end of the day, just dumps into the same big reality at the end of heaven or of salvation, okay? Um, that Jesus, this, this belief would say, is one of many paths, but not the only path. Third view, anybody here ever heard of Rob Bell? Okay. One and a half of you have heard of Rob Bell. Okay, Rob Bell kind of uh, propagated this third view that's been around for a while, and every so many decades it makes its way around again. And he wrote a book called Love Wins. It was a big, uh, very controversial, and in my opinion, rightly so, book, I don't know, many years ago. But the third view is this, Christian universalism, okay? 
what a Christian universalist would say is that, that, yeah, no, we believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. We believe that it's not many paths, but Jesus is the only way to salvation. But what these folks will believe is that at the end of the day, somehow, God will impart what Jesus did onto every single person somehow, no matter what they believed. So they'll come through the doorway into salvation and heaven through Jesus, even if they didn't consciously choose Jesus or purposefully choose Jesus. This breaks down into some different paths. Some people, Rob Bell, what he suggested, and some people believe in this, is that after your death, everybody's going to have a chance to respond to Jesus. And after, right, so after your death, you have a chance to, okay, dude, you now see Jesus, right? You choose Jesus. Or another kind of view is that um, God will somehow, again, impart the grace of Jesus to people and the work of Jesus to people, even if they don't believe it. No afterlife, pluralistic, everybody gets there. Everybody gets there, but they get through their Jesus. And then there's a fourth view, and this would be the view that Calvary holds. This is the view that Scripture supports, the totality of Scripture. We can take a Bible verse out of one Bible verse out of context and make it say anything. But when you look at the totality of Scripture, and this is what the word's called, and does it, it, right? it sounds exclusive, but that's the title of this theory, is exclusivism. And exclusivism holds that Jesus is the only way to salvation. That if you look at the totality of Scripture, it's not any path gets you to the river. It's not you're going to have a chance after you die to respond to Jesus. It is that when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man come to the Father but by me, he meant it. And a guy who came back from the dead said, I am the way, I am the truth, nobody comes except through me, that this is, right, the, the biblical position. And that what determines one's destiny is the choice that one makes about Jesus during their life. Again, we hold all of these up to Scripture. We don't hold them up to one Bible verse. We hold them up to the totality of Scripture. And this is what the totality of Scripture seems to support. So the question is now, now let's, what does today's text have to do with that, right? Like, well, Peter, is that really true? Or are you just making that up? What does today's text have to do and say about this issue? It's one text of several texts that suggests and supports and shows that exclusivism is the biblical way. Um, and so here's what we saw last week. Revelation 14, verse 1 says this. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. What we talked about last week is this, this vision of at the end of the story, the people of God are with their Savior and their King, and it's this massive, they're singing a new song, and it's this worship service on the other side of all their hardships. The people of God are in the presence of God, and everything is good. We saw a snapshot of the after-post-death reality for people who believe in Jesus. But then what the text shows is a different reality. And here's the reality. It contrasts, hey, here are the people that believed in Jesus and were faithful to God and 
right, had a relationship and forgiven. And then it's going to show the reality for people who freely, who chose differently than that. And here's what the text says about that in verses 9 through 11. Um, And look, this is, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell a whole lot of jokes today um, because this isn't a joking passage. And there is no joy or pleasure or um, excitement in necessarily me sharing with you what the text says because uh, when we personalize this, it's heavy. Um, And so I don't want to appear flippant or, and so with that tone, here's what the God has revealed to us about the post-death reality for people who aren't in a relationship with Jesus. It says this, verse 9 through 11, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, we got two different groups of people. Last week were people, remember, they were marked by God. They were sealed by God because they were in Jesus. They were in Christ. This week is people who are marked apart from God, right? Not in Christ. So receives a mark on his forehead or, or on his hand. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Let's walk through a few of those uh, phrases together. Could you go back one more slide, back to the prior one? That'd be great. Um, Drink the wine of God's wrath. In that culture, um, somebody would have the wine, and what many times they would do is they would dilute that wine. They would put some water into the wine so that it wouldn't be as strong and it wouldn't be as powerful, right? And what, what God is revealing here, what we see in the book of Revelation, is that, man, when this judgment comes, when this moment comes, that the wine of God's wrath isn't going to be diluted. It's going to be poured full strength. That what we're going to see, and here's what we need to see, right? So here's what we need to see. God doesn't want this to happen. I'm giving you a spoiler alert, okay? Because in a few verses above this, God is doing everything he can not to have this moment come. This is not what God wants to have happen. But a just God who knows the horror of sin, one day there is punishment coming for that. And what this is saying is when that day comes, it's not going to be God holding back like he's doing now. It is going to be undiluted. It is going to be God's punishment on sin. And then God continues, and he describes what that's going to look like. And we'll talk about what all that means, but I'm sorry, can you go one more time? Good job, you're ahead of me, but good job. One more, can you go back one? Oh, we got cats running, though. We got, the, we got Captain Kirk up there running the thing. All right, so um, here, look, tormented with fire and sulfur. He's saying, look, I... When this day comes, 
at that moment, I'm not going to hold back anymore. I'm holding back now. I'm giving chances. I'm giving grace. I'm giving mercy. But when that comes, it's going to be full on. And part of that full on, the descriptive way they talk about it, is tormented with fire and sulfur. This word also means, can be translated brimstone sometimes. In that culture, this was like the volcanic, hot, rocky lava stuff that was found near volcanoes. And if you've ever been in the Okefenokee Swamp and taken a shower in the state park showers, it smells like rotten eggs, right? It's, it's this brimstony, hot, smelly, intense thing. And then what we saw on that slide a few times, right? Look at how the description of what happens. This goes up forever and ever, forever and ever. Interestingly, throughout the book of Revelation, we've seen this phrase forever and ever, forever and ever, but it's being used to describe the followers of Jesus in the presence of Jesus, worshiping Jesus for all of eternity. It's a phrase that's used for followers of Jesus to describe them being with Jesus forever and ever and worship forever and ever. It's got an eternality to it. And Similarly, it would seem to suggest that there's an eternality to this. It goes up forever and ever. But I know what some people may be thinking. I know what some people think when this, well, this is Revelation. Like, Revelation is a creepy book. There's lots of scary things and hard things and difficult things. And, and so some people might think, well, that's great, Peter, but here's the question that I want to have, right? Because, man, what I love to read about and study about is Jesus. I'd much rather read about and study about Jesus in the book of Revelation because Jesus was caring for people. Jesus was interacting with people. Jesus was loving people. We, we often see Jesus judging the religious churchy churchy people. But as far as the people who didn't know him, he had grace, he had mercy. Okay, so maybe that's what Revelation says. But what is the, the next question is, well, what does Jesus say about this? Does what Revelation say align with what Jesus says, and interestingly, it does. And if I haven't checked this, but there's one commentator who said that it actually Jesus has the most conversations about hell than any other place in the Bible. That the place that has the most content and description and conversation about hell are the words of Jesus himself, the words of that person who is loving and who you often see his criticism being of religious people and not people who aren't yet in his kingdom. And with people in his kingdom, there's grace and there is mercy and there is kindness and there is compassion. And flowing out of that, what we can see is Jesus is shooting them straight. Out of love, Jesus is shooting us straight because a loving person wouldn't lie to us. A loving person wouldn't want to mislead us. A loving person wouldn't want to misdirect us. A loving person looks us in the eye and says, hey, here's the deal. And that, in his compassion, is what Jesus does. Here's some of the things that Jesus said. First thing, he, he's talking about, right, this sorting out of things. Um, and then he says these words, so it will be at the end of the age, right? That referring to when the story's all done here, the angels will come and separate people who are in a relationship with Jesus from those who aren't. And then, right, this is Jesus' words. Throw them into the fiery furnace. 
And that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, in a minute, we'll try to understand that. But interestingly, in Revelation, we saw fire. Jesus says the same thing. He repeats this idea later on in another passage where he says this. He's talking about, like, don't sin. And if you chase sin and if you don't repent and if you don't have forgiveness of your sin, right? And he's using broad language here. But then he said, it's better for you, right, to deal with your sin and to have to give up things in this life in holiness and in following Jesus than not to follow Jesus and have the result be thrown into the eternal fire. We see one more passage. It doesn't use the phrase internal, but uses the phrase unquenchable fire. So lots of broad descriptive language. How do we understand those terms? How, how do we understand this description of fire and brimstone and sulfur and unquenchable? Well, here's the next question that commentators spend a ton of time discussing. How do we understand it? And among Christian, Orthodox, non-heretical, evangelical Scholars, theologians, pastors, there's kind of breaks into three different camps. One camp is called annihilation. And annihilation is the belief that for people who have not responded in faith to Jesus, that they simply cease to exist. <clears throat> that it's not eternal torment, it's not punishment, it is a ceasing to exist. There is one verse um, where Jesus talks about uh, souls being destroyed that supports that, but it's one verse, and it's not as crystal clear, and it comes down to uh, people, there's a split in the Greek, and some passages mean that, and some people mean that, so there's, in my opinion, not a whole lot of overwhelming support from that, but it is one position people take. The second one and interestingly, this is what a ton of, and all of these could be supported from Scripture. Uh, the second perspective is that the fire language is symbolic, that it is not to be taken literally, that it is simply being used to describe something that's really unpleasant. Several times in the ministry of Jesus and describing Jesus, talks about how Jesus was coming with fire in his mouth. Jesus actually never showed up like a dragon with fire in his mouth. It was a description of things. And so some commentators say, look, this is symbolic, not to be taken literally. They do believe that it is a literal place where there is punishment and out of the presence of God, but not necessarily fire and smoke. And... Uh, this was as I was studying this week, one commentator noted that the people that hold to that position are John Calvin, for our Calvinist friends, Martin Luther, C.S. Lewis, if you like Chronicles of Narnia, Billy Graham, a uh, guy who wrote an amazing book and a great theologian, G.I. Uh, Pack, Packer. No, he's not a gastroenterologist. Uh, J.L. Packer. It looks like G.I. here. I'm going blind. I'm getting old. J.L. Packer. And then, interestingly, a kind of a more current pastor or writer, uh, Francis Chan, would take this position. And then there's another group of people who say, no, this actually is to be taken literally, and um, it's not meant to be symbolic, that it actually will be a place of fire, which... One of these is correct. <clears throat> I don't know. I don't think it's this one. 
I wish it was this one. Um, I wish we weren't even having this conversation, to be honest. Like, I really do. And I know this is, a, a, well, yeah. this is the next verse we're in, guys, so here we are, right? What are we going to do? Um, then I, I guess I want it to be that one, and I feel like that's pretty compelling, but it could be that one. So I, I don't know. But here's what we do know. No matter which one of those are, we can pull three things from this, okay? We're all let's pull together, let's tie up some loose ends about what we can pull from this this morning. As you look through what Revelation said in our text today, as you look through what Jesus said in his text and verses, that in aligning with the Old Testament, hell is described as a place of punishment for people who do not respond to Jesus. For people who have not responded in faith to what Jesus said about himself being a substitute punished for sins so that we would not have to be punished, hell is described as a place of punishment. There seems to be an eternal, continual component to the punishment and the language of fire, like I just said, it could be, but it could not be figurative or symbolic. But let me remind you of the spoiler alert that I gave you before. And if you're uncomfortable with this sermon, if you're angry about this sermon, if you think that's not the God I know, hey, you're, you're, we're all in different places spiritually. We're all processing. We all learn what the Bible says, and then we bring it in, and we process through it, right? And, and we, we, we have to decide what are we going to do with it. But as you're hearing this, and you're like, well, no, Smith, I don't know what you're talking about, but my God's loving, and Jesus is loving, and you're crazy, and you're some fundamentalist wacko. That, that's, you're entitled to think what you think, but be sure to hear this, and I've already said it. God does not want anybody to experience this. God does not want anybody to experience this. And we see this in this text today. This text, again, if our view is correct, which is a futurist view, we're looking ahead to the end of the story. We've seen a lot together that if we're correct, which we may or may not be about this tribulation period, it's been hard. And now we're at, we, we remember we, a while ago we got to like the seventh trumpet or something. The king is coming back. Jesus in the chronology at where we are and as looking at, is gearing up to come back. He has not yet come back in the chronology, but that's where we are. The story is almost over. If you're binging a series of Revelation, you are 20 minutes into the last episode in the last season. If you're reading a book, you have three more pages to go in a 100-page novel. And at that moment in history, when so much has happened and the end is so close, we see God giving a full-on, last attempt, committed, passionate, purposeful, wanting everybody to pay attention so that nobody experiences this. Because here is what we see in that, I mean, the Netflix series is almost done and the final battle and victory is about to be here. And we're about to reach the place where there are no more choices. When what we have chosen has sealed what will happen to us. But before we reach that point and right in the 11th hour, this is what we read about God doing verses 6 through 
7. I saw another angel flying directly overhead, right? So before the king comes back, before this happens, before the fate is sealed, God tells us what he's going to do. I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and every tribe and every language and every people. And he said with a loud voice, and if this is actually a description of what physically will be heard, I don't know what the tone of this voice is. I don't know if it's a gentle father who's seeing his kid about to run into the street, who's kneeling down before him, kindly saying, bro, don't run into the street. I don't know if it's God loudly proclaiming this like a coach at halftime trying to get people to pay attention. I don't know the tone, but I know the heart. And the heart is this, fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the seas and the spring of water. Fear God and give him glory. A few things out of that. The first one is that we see this going on with a loud voice. It's underscoring for you and me that God is commitment to make sure that this is being proclaimed, this rescue message, loudly and boldly and purposefully. And it is not an exclusive message. It is not an elitist message. It is not a message only given to one country in one moment. It is for all people, every nation, every tribe, every language on earth, Every people group, everyone, God's like going, listen, the clock is ticking and it's almost ticked. And before your choice and your rebellion and your certainty that you knew what best is going to put you in a place that you don't want to be, I am coming to you one more time to try to get your attention, to try to get you to pay attention. I'm saying it loudly, and I'm saying it to every country and every people group and every nationality because that's my heart, and I want them you, he's going to be saying, look, fear me. It's with the eternal gospel. It's with the good news of Jesus. It's with the fact that there doesn't have to be shame anymore. That there doesn't have to be punishment anymore. That there doesn't have to be guilt anymore. That there doesn't have to be separation anymore. That Jesus has paid it all. And there can be freedom and righteousness and grace and identity and confidence and hope. All of that is linked up in the eternal gospel that God is saying to these people. And he's saying, will you pay attention? Will you pay attention to the gospel and respond to it? And will you fear me? Linked with the idea of repenting, linked with the idea of turning from where you're going and turning back to me, will you come home and come to me? Because whatever those, those three attributes about hell, God doesn't want anybody to go there. 
Now, I know there's all sorts of theology that we won't have time to talk about that are amazing questions. Well, why do, if he doesn't want us to go there, why doesn't he just mandate we don't? This gets into all sorts of threads. But, but here, I'm going to cut it to you really quick, right? For some reason, in his sovereignty, and I am not God, but God has determined there's something better for us to have free will than to be robots. There is something about free will that is what is best for us. He created us with it. It got us a lot of mess. It could be linked to we then are freely able to worship him freely. God decided he was going to give us free will instead of making us robots. He could have made us robots. He could have. He didn't. I don't know why. But he does. He hasn't told us. And so what he's saying is, look, we pay attention. God has spent thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years trying to rescue us, committed to it, giving, I mean, he's given me so much, as a Christian, grace to me, mercy to me, second chances to me. He's given it to you. None of us have ever faced the complete, absolute unraveling of what if he just took his hands off the wheel and let us run right off the cliff in our lives. Some of us have gotten, man, we, we've crashed pretty heavily, but we've never felt the full weight of his undiluted wrath, and as Christians, we never will. For thousands of years, God has tried to get this message out again and again. And again, and to people who have heard the message of Jesus, Old Testament leading up to the Messiah, responding in faith to what you know about God after Jesus, thousands of years, people have either fallen into two camps, and the camp has either been, God, you know what's best, I'll trust you, and I believe in Jesus, or I know what's best, I'm going to do it my way. And there's consequences for doing it our way. And before we face or people face the final consequence of doing it their way, God is there on the brink as that Coast Guard helicopter rescue swimmer flying into the heart of the storm, trying one more time to grab their hand and say, will you grab me? I'm going to pull you up to me. Now, I know that we're spiritually dead unless God awakens us and lots of complexities there, but what we see here that's not complicated is God's giving one more proclamation of the message because he never wants anybody to experience this. 1 Timothy 2.4 says this. The triune God desires all people to be saved. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of God. And what we see through this book is a God who has steadfast love, who is patient, abounding in grace, who continually tries to give people chances to respond to him. That is the heart of God. And if I'm a follower of God, and if you're a follower of God, our hearts should be that heart. Our hearts should reflect the heart of the Father who saved us.
And so what do we do? What do we do? Well, here's the first thing to do this morning for all of us. Um, Assess how we have responded to Jesus. Assess how you have responded to Jesus. And I'm not asking you to assess if you've been a good churchgoer. I'm not asking you to assess if you read your Bible a lot this week. I'm not asking you to assess what you've done to be good. I'm asking you to assess how have you responded to Jesus. How have you? Sometimes people ask me, right? I mean, I constantly get asked this. Whatever the issue is, people ask me, well, um, if the, Peter, let me ask you a question. I have, all right, this is not the real question. I'm try, it's really hard on the fly to come up with a hypothetical, so I'm trying real hard. Peter, I have a question. I, they come to me, my office, it's amazing. I, I have a friend who goes into, this is their story, not really, but hypothetical. I have a friend who goes into ShopRite, and they go to the vanilla ice creams, and they open up the package, and in sin, they lick every package of vanilla ice cream and put the lid back on. They are a sinner. They are making bad choices. Surely they can't be a Christian, right? Well, in that case, they probably can't be, okay? But in the hypothetical that you guys bring to me, this is the reality. What makes you a Christian is not if you're currently in a lifestyle of sin. Now, a Christian should not be purposely and willfully in an intentional pattern of rebellion and sin. But what makes somebody a Christian is how have they responded to Jesus? How have you responded to Jesus? The story of the gospel is this, that every single one of us, when God said, do it my way, we said, nope, I'm going to do it my way. You've done that, I've done that, we've done that. And when we did it our way, there is a consequence, and the consequence is there is now something that is sin within us that has shattered us and impacted us, that has separated us from God because a holy God can't be in the presence of sin. And there will be eternal consequences and impact if that is not remedied. And the choice is, at the end of the day, God could have said, well, I'm not going to remedy it. I'm going to make them full the full weight of that. But that's not the story. The story is that Jesus said, look, I understand there has to be punishment of God. I will willfully father. You've heard me say this a thousand times. But I don't know sometimes why we don't get it. The story is that Jesus said, the truth is that Jesus said, I will willfully go stand in their place as a substitute and everything that they deserve for their choice, I will take. Bring it on me. Put it on me. I will carry it. And so, Father, I'm going to exchange something. I will be punished instead of them. I will take the bullet for them so that they never have to. I will take all their sin, I will take the punishment, and I will give to them forgiveness and righteousness and hope. And what determines if that exchange takes place is one thing, faith. Faith. For it is by grace that we are saved through faith, not of works, so that nobody can boast. Because if it was about how good I could be, and if I got to be good, I'd be a, I would be an arrogant jerk. 
Because if it's all about, let me try to be good enough, and we thought we could be good, and God's like, bro, you can never be good enough, you knucklehead. It's all about Jesus. How have you responded to him? I don't care if you've been in this church for 30 seconds or 30 years. That don't mean a thing. It doesn't. And there are people sitting in all sorts of churches today that may not believe what we believe, who are Christians because of their response in Jesus. And there are all sorts of people sitting in churches just like Calvary Church today, where that church has the same doctrine we don't, who are great churchgoers, but they've never responded to Jesus. And this should be, let me just say this, if you're, this should be like, this should have been a, a, a millisecond of a response. How have you responded to Jesus? Boom, got the answer. It should be, because we either have or we haven't, right? And I'm not making, see, the challenge with this is that sometimes some of you, it's going to make you wonder, did you? I don't know. And there's going to be anxiety and there's going to be fear. And look, there should be no fear. If there is a moment when you said, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and was a substitute for me, man, you've responded. But if you're sitting here for 25 minutes the whole time and talking, trying to assess, well, how have I responded? What does it mean to respond? (laughs) Right? I don't know. Maybe that shows there's some more thought to be done. Look, one thing, uh, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that the one thing that for 130 years and for, man, hopefully through the grace of God for the past 10 years or for me is there's been things that change, there's been whatever, quirkiness, weirdness, but man, the one thing that's never changed is the commitment to the gospel. And I've never, ever, ever wanted anybody at Calvary Church who's heard my teaching to be confused about what the gospel is. Never. I've never wanted you to think it's about being moralistic or about being a Pharisee or trying self It's about Jesus. How have you responded to Jesus? Second response for those of us who have responded in faith to Jesus is this. Cultivate a heart like God's for people who don't know him. Why is my heart not more like God's for people who don't know him? I mean, I mean, I've given decades of my life to this book. I've studied this book. I can, well, back in the day when I was smarter and younger, I can translate, you know, books into Hebrew and Greek. I mean, I believe this is absolutely 100% true. I do. I've staked my life on it, and a bunch of you have. I believe everything that's written in this book that's speaking to a truth point is a truth point, okay? You understand literally it's true, true. But So why is my heart not like God's heart for people who don't know him? Why is my heart so <sighs> distracted by so many other things? So many less important things. And I, I, know, I know what some of you are thinking because I think it. Well, I don't want to be weird. Like, I want to do it through relationship. I, like, I don't want to just hand out trash. I get all, I get that. But at the end of the day, I don't think we let, I think we don't think about this, a lot of us. I don't think about as much as I do. If I did, I would do things differently. If I, and see, here's the weird thing. I'm just confessing. This amount of therapy for a minute, okay? I do believe, I was about to say, if I believe this was true. I do believe this is true. But yet my heart in many ways is so far away from God's heart for people. 
The God who is running to the edge of the brink and the abyss saying, look, let me tell you the gospel one more time. Man, and I'm just saying that in confidence and authenticity because I think if you were authentic, not everybody, there's some of you, man, who you are so uh, passionate to share God's word, right? And to live God's word. But there's also so many of us who, in this respect, our heart is not fully aligned with the heart of God in this matter. We're great at Bible studies, and that's good. But when it comes to the reality for people who may not know him, that we, we, we just kind of choke and we kind of stall and we kind of spin some of us, not all of us. Not all of us. So, man, do I have a heart for people who don't know Jesus like Jesus did? Did you? Here's what Francis Chan said. He's got a great book if you're interested in this. I've read, I've read Love Wins by Rob Bell that talks about that Christian universalism. I mean, read it if you want to. I think it's not accurate. I don't think it's actually well written. The lawyer in me is like, bro, I would love to go in a hearing against you. It's not, and I don't think, he's usually a funny, sarcastic dude. It just doesn't read well. But if you want to know the other, but then, man, Francis Chan has written an amazing book called Erasing Hell that reaffirms an orthodox position on this idea. And here's what Francis said. Do not forget that the doctrine we are studying may be the destiny of many people. Hell should not be studied without tearful prayer. So how do we cultivate, right? I thought about this, like the guy up here never wants to just dump something on us and say, do it. Okay, well, that's great, Smith. How do I do it? Well, I think here's some steps to cultivate a heart like God's. First one, pray. Pray. You know, when you look at prayer in the Bible, um, you know, God wants certain things to be true about his kingdom. And when we align our hearts in line with what he wants, God works. When our prayers mirror what his will is for his kingdom, not my kingdom, his kingdom, God works. And God wants everybody to know the message and to respond and to be saved. And so if we pray, God, will you cultivate a heart like mine? He will work. Pray. Second thing is this, study Jesus. Study Jesus. Not the Jesus you want him to be, not the Jesus you've always understood him to be, but the Jesus that he is, as shown in his four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the third thought is pray. 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 Study Jesus. Pray. Third response is this. As you're praying for a heart to more reflect the Father's heart, Pray for people with whom to share and for opportunities to share. And <clears throat> there is a, uh, th there are two pathways to take when we think about what it means to share, to witness, that whole evangelism thing, right? There is a word and deed, truth and love. There is absolutely a component of, man, you live out, in your own life, the love of Jesus, and you serve people, and you love people, and sometimes that's what you do, and that's how you plant the seed, and that is true, and that is good, but then there's this other part of, at a certain point, part of what the gospel is, is a proclamation, is a statement, and me, I, man, I love to be way over here in the friendship piece. I, I can live over here great, kind of, unless 
unless I flash my lights at you for you to take a turn in front of me and you don't do it. That makes me so mad. If I'm driving down the road and you're trying to take a left turn and I'm coming and I do the old, you know, the old northeastern tri-state aerial flash the high beams to let you go, and if you just sit there, I, I would rather you cut me off and throw coke on my car or slash my tires than like me do that and not go, right? But so that's the only time I get really crazy. Usually I'm good at being nice, being loving, being kind, and I, I, I land over here, right? Friendship evangelism, I'm not minimizing it. There's a role to that because if we're jerks, why would anybody want to be like us? But some of us have camped here for 14 years. You have played golf with that person for 14 years now. You have. There's been that non-Christian, you're like, I know, I pray, I cultivate a relationship. I think God wants me to invite this dude to play golf. You did. He came. It's like, yeah, okay, yeah, I can't play Sunday, I go to church. Okay, that's great. That was 13 and a half years ago. And many of us, when we do this relational evangelism, which I'm not minimizing, we all say, well, the point of it is to want, I know this, I can say the words, to one day cross it with the bridge of the gospel. Yeah, that's great, but we don't do it. Because we get, I don't, I don't, we don't do it. Um, pray for people with whom to share and for opportunities to share. It is a both and. It is a relationship, it is a love, it is a kindness, and there is truth that at some point has to be proclaimed. We pray for opportunities, and the next thing is this, independence, uh, I'm sorry, I'm past 48 minutes, I apologize. Independence on the Spirit takes the opportunities that God provides. And then these last two are, uh, I would say this too, and I'll ask the worship team to come up here, right? Independence on the Spirit takes the opportunities that God provides. Here's a really important one, and you guys can make your way up. Do not think. See, the reason that some of us just camp out here and we never move to actually saying anything is because we think it's up to us to close the deal. We think it's up to us to close the deal. Do not think that you are responsible or even able to convert people. That is not your responsibility. You can't do it. You're not able to do it. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. So take the pressure off. Me? I used to like not want to do it because I felt so much pressure. I'm like, well, okay, I got to figure out the way to do this because if they don't get on their knees and confess Jesus, then I failed. And like, it's all the pressures on me. And, I, and then I realized, Smith, the pressure's never on us to convert people. Here is what we know. We're flip the next one. Here's the fifth response. Whatever. Know that you're responsible to tell. Responsible to tell, not responsible to convert. And when you land in this place, there is freedom that comes. Because what happens with what you say is up to God. And your job is just to say it. Just to say it. And let me say this. Um, man, I, I, it's a little more difficult for those of you who aren't pastors to do this because you know why as a pastor... Like, random people just start confessing their sins to me. I'm not lying. Right? So as a pastor, I'm supposed to talk pastorally and biblically and spiritually. So when I do it, everybody's like, oh, yeah, that's great. It's easy for me. It's what, you know what I mean? Like, I'm supposed to do it. I know that when you're not a pastor, it's not quite always what's expected when you're in the golf course, but, but we're still responsible to do it. It's not your burden to convert, not your responsibility to convert, but it's all of our responsibility to tell. And so the question is, 
since this is true, what are we doing with it? And how have we responded? If you were going through, man, just a lot of wrestling or turmoil or stirring when the question was lingering for a few moments about how have you responded to Jesus, I would encourage you at the end of our time to head over to the prayer corner, talk to those folks about it. I'll be around, Jim will be around, some others will be around, grab us. Um, and maybe this is the moment, man, that God's trying to rescue you and bring you home. And sometimes those of us who are more po- most opposed to that and get most defensive about that are the very same people who know that we need rescued the most. God loves you. God loves you. Father, uh, be with us. Will you help us avoid being distracted by so many things that we wrongly place as priorities? Give us joy in cultivating a heart like yours and a heart like Jesus. I pray that you will Help us all know those opportunities you put in our lives and how you want us to steward those things. Father, take away from us the pressure to feel like we have to convert everybody and give us the courage and the joy in just telling in a wise, kind, loving way uh, the truth that has changed many of our lives about Jesus. And I really pray that you'll foster within us a heart and a confidence and a kindness and a gentleness, and a boldness, so that we'll do that in a way that will reflect the sweet aroma of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy. Amen.